Christ, the, the perfect eternal sacrifice, Lord, would cleanse us from all sin. We ask, Lord, that you would wash us uh, in body, soul, and spirit, Lord, that our mind would be pure before you, that you would give us clean hands and a pure heart. We thank you, Lord, that your mercies are renewed day by day, and that today we can ask and know that uh, we find forgiveness before you, Lord. And, and we pray, Lord, that uh, in that you'd also fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would let a fresh uh, wave of your breath come over us. We pray, Lord, that our, our lamps would be filled with oil, that our lights would be burning today. And, and the Father, you would uh, sanctify our minds to uh, focus upon you, that you'd sanctify our eyes to be able to see you, Lord, and you'd touch our ears, that we would hear your voice from heaven. And Father, we lay our whole lives before you and pray that you would uh, make us the, the type of men that we're supposed to be uh, in every way and in every area, Lord, uh, in our thought lives, in our families, in our world, and uh, in our work, Lord, our industry, and in, in, in our personality, Lord. And we pray that as you um, have set forth to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ and to make us what we are not, Lord, we ask that you, uh, with your skillful potter's hand, would uh, work, work the clay of us, Lord, and make us that, that we would yield to you in all things. And, and so we just pray, Lord, for light this morning. We pray for uh, grace. To, to come over our lives, Lord, and, uh, and that you would take up work in us. And Father, we uh, we ask you, Lord, that you would reveal to us, Lord, what we need to know, um, both for, for the, the personal situations that we have, but also, Lord, for uh, the kingdom of God and for what you're doing in the world in these days, and the place that our church plays in it, the place that our presence plays in it, Lord. And, and we just put that before you, Lord. We ask that you would give us spiritual wisdom, that you would give us revelation, knowledge of you, that you would uh, teach us all things, Lord, by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. And so, uh, Lord, we commit ourselves to you this morning. And Lord, as we've endeavored to um, set apart this time to strengthen our walk, to uh, um, to consecrate more of our lives unto you, we pray, Lord, that you would prosper us in that purpose and, and that you'd reveal yourself to us here this morning. So teach us, Lord. Let your word come to life. Let your truth abound towards us, Lord. And I pray that you would just let there be an overwhelming sense of your love in this room, Lord, that we would have love one for another. We pray that we'd be knit together in one heart, one mind. And Lord, that you would just baptize us in your Holy Spirit, that uh, we would we would be equipped for every good work. So Lord, we commit this to you. We, we know that you've heard us in these things. We know that you're here. And we ask for your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. If you have your Bibles, um, Genesis 12, Romans 4, Ephesians 2. Genesis 12, Romans 4, Ephesians 2. In that order? Yes. Thank you. Genesis 12, and you just go backwards to the end of chapter 11, 
verse 26. It says, And Terah lived 70 years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begat Lot. So Lot is Abraham's nephew. And Haran died before his father, Terah, in the land of his nativity, in Ur of the Chaldees, which is a province of Babylon, in Mesopotamia, or modern-day Iraq. And Abraham and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and the father of Iscah, but Sarai was barren, she had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. Haran is a couple of hundred miles north of the land of Canaan. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah, the father of Abraham, uh, died in Haran. Now the Lord, Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, and unto a land that I will show you. The Bible tells us in the New Testament book of Ephesians, that we, um, the New Testament believer, are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. In other words, when God saves our lives, He already has a purpose uh, and a reason for which He's saving us. He has something in mind that we're uh, going to do. Now, He um, does not usually disclose to us what that is. <laughs> uh, it's something that we discover, or maybe we don't discover it, and God uses us to fulfill that purpose, and we don't really find out uh, maybe what it is until we get to glory. But as we read through the pages of Scripture, and we see the men and the women that God chooses, and that God uses uh, in the progression of His plan and His work in the world, it's easy for us to discover, uh, as we look at those lives, what it is that God created those men in Christ to accomplish. And so we look at the great Apostle Paul, and as we uh, look at his life from a heaven's eye view, we can um, say that God created him to be the great Apostle to the Gentiles. He was the one that brought uh, the message of the gospel to the Gentile world, and thus the churches and, and, and really even our salvation because of the ministry of Paul, God's plan for Paul. Uh, we can look at Daniel, the prophet from the Old Testament, and we can look at his life and conclude that God used him to lay out uh, the timeline and the course of nations and what God's plan was, what he was going to do. And so that was the purpose of Daniel's ministry. We look at the life of Joseph, and we can uh, um, watch 
what God did with him and how God used him. And at the end of it all, we can look at it and we can say that, that God used him as a demonstration or a testimony of providence and how God prepares a life uh, and works in a life to prepare them for their destiny. We can look at the life of David and we can conclude that God used him to be an example of a leader and of a man who's after God's own heart. You know, and so and so on it goes. As you look through the scripture, you can conclude based on the testimony uh, uh, of what they did, what God made them to do. And so we come to the life of Abraham. And as we consider it, we ask, well, what in the world did God make Abraham to do? Because when you study his life, it's a very inconclusive uh, um, thing to try to discover. I mean, he really didn't do anything. He didn't, um, he wasn't a king of a nation. He, he didn't uh, change the course of, of world history, at least directly in his lifetime. We know that the race that came from him did. You know, but we ask that question, we say, well, God, what were the works that you gave to Abraham to do? He basically moved from his father's house. He obtained a son by promise and under impossible circumstances. And then he wandered around back and forth between Canaan and Egypt, buried his wife, offered his son and received him back, and yeah, yeah it was good, but what did he do? Well, what is the purpose uh, and the testimony of Abraham's life? And it's not as easy um, for us to determine it or to see it. And so what's the answer to the question? Uh, the answer is in Romans chapter 4. What's the purpose of why God called Abram? What was the work that God foreordained that he would walk in it? And what is it that God wants us to learn from it? Why is it in the Bible? <clears throat> now, the book of Romans is probably one of the most important books in the entire New Testament. And the purpose of the book of Romans, why it's in the Bible and why it's important, is given to us in chapter 1, verse 16. You don't have to turn there. But it says that the gospel, and it's Paul's premise, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. And that's the great theme of the book of Romans. That's why it's written. Paul wanted to explain in simple, clear, and comprehensive terms what is the gospel. What is the Christian faith? What is salvation? That's what the book of Romans is. And so he writes about the gospel, but then right after that, in the same verse, chapter 1, verse 16, he tacks something on that's important to us. He says, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. In other words, this gospel, or this salvation, is universal. There isn't one covenant that was given to the Jews, and then a separate one that was given to the Gentiles. But rather, the gospel of our salvation saves both the Jew and the Gentile alike. And so the theme is the gospel, and the premise is that that gospel is universal. It goes to the Jew and then also to the Gentile. And then he begins, as he sets forth from there, and he takes the first two and a half chapters to bring us to the conclusion that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew by genealogy or by background. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, whether you are a moralist. It doesn't matter what you are, where you come from. If you were born into this world of a woman, then you are a sinner 
and thereby you are disqualified from fellowship with God. You are fallen, you are lost. And he takes two and a half chapters to bring that to an absolute conclusion, that there is no escaping the fact that every single one of us is lost before God. But then, at the end of chapter 3, he presents the good news that you can be saved even though you are lost and separated from God. He says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but there is a justification or a righteousness that can be declared over a guilty life based upon what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. And that that was God's plan from the beginning, is that he would reveal a way of salvation that was separate from the works that we've done. And that's what the gospel is. That's what Jesus came to do. And so that's what he says at the end of chapter 3 of Romans. He presents that, that there's been a substitutionary atonement provided by the Son of God, by Jesus Christ. But that would raise a question. Because we would begin to say that, okay, well, what about the difference between the Jew and the Gentile? Because it would seem that the Jews in the Old Testament were given a covenant whereby their salvation would come through the set of commandments, or by the right of circumcision, or by the right of connection to Abraham, the one whom God said uh, that he called and said that the Messiah would come through him. So how does Jesus apply to the Old Testament saint? How does the gospel of Christ, which is salvation by grace through faith, apply to the Old Testament and to the New Testament alike? So what Paul does then in Romans chapter 4 is he goes back to the very beginning. He goes back to Abraham, and he uses Abraham as a proof and an example that salvation was always intended by God to be through Jesus Christ and through the blood of the atonement. That it was never based upon the law or the commands that man could be saved. So notice with me in chapter 4, verse 1, what it says about Abraham. And remember, the reason why we're looking at this is because we want to know why did God put Abraham's story in the Bible? He says, what shall we say then that Abraham, our father... Now, pause right there, and again, I'm using a King James Bible, and I don't know what your translation says there, but that word, our, is a very important word. Do you see that? He says, what shall we say then that our father, Abraham, is pertaining to the flesh as found? Now, why is that important? Because who's Paul writing to here? He's writing to Romans. Right? This is to Rome. These are Gentiles. And so any Gentile, any Roman that's reading this letter is going to say, wait a minute, Abraham's not my father. Abraham's your father, maybe Paul, but he's not my father. You're mistaken. In what, no, Paul's not mistaken. He meant exactly what he said. He said, what has our father, Abraham, as pertaining to the flesh bound? Now watch this. For if Abraham were justified by works, meaning by what he did, <laughs> by establishing his own righteousness, that he has whereof to glory, something to boast of, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, that's faith, and it was counted to him, or reckoned unto him, or imputed unto him. All three of those words are interchangeable, given to him, in other words. It was reckoned or counted unto him for righteousness. 
Now, he's quoting from Genesis 15. We'll get there to the portion of Scripture that he's talking about. But the premise here that Paul's making is that Abraham's salvation was not based upon his keeping of commands or his obedience to God. His, his salvation was based upon faith in something that God said. And in believing what God said, it says that it was reckoned or imputed unto him for righteousness. So Abraham was saved by believing the word of God, and thus God imputed or gave to him a righteous standing, even though he was born a sinner. That's what Paul's saying. Now, verse 4, to him that works, meaning that you're trying to be saved by keeping commands, by pleasing God in your obedience, to him that works is the reward not reckoned by grace, but of debt. In other words, if you could work for your salvation, then God would owe it to you. It wouldn't be by grace. You're not saved by grace. You're saved by reward. You're saying, God, I've earned this salvation. So there's a difference between someone who would work and someone who would receive. But, verse 5, to him that worketh not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted or reckoned or imputed, same word, for righteousness. In other words, if someone chooses to just simply believe God and receive by faith what he says about righteousness through Jesus Christ, then that person is saved by the gift of God. It's an imputed righteousness, not an earned righteousness. Even, now verse 6, as David also describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes or reckons righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now he quotes from Psalm 32 right there, and he uses three different words for sin. He uses the word uh, iniquities in verse 7. He uses the word sins in verse uh, 7. And then it's translated sin in verse 8. But uh, in, in, the, um, in the Greek and also then in the Hebrew in Psalm 32, it's the word transgression. So there's iniquity, there's sin, and there's transgression. Iniquity is I didn't even know I did it and I did it wrong. Sin is I was trying to do what's right and I did what's wrong. And, it, and transgression is God drew a line in the sand, looked me in the eye and said, don't cross that line. And I look God in the eye and I cross the line. It's direct, immediate, willful disobedience. And what he says there is that all three of those are forgiven when God imputes a righteousness or reckons us righteous even though we didn't earn it. And the result of that is blessedness. Blessed is the man. And so he's saying, David, that even in the Old Testament, even in the time of David, there was a righteousness that came from God to man that was not dependent upon man's work or man's keeping of laws and commandments. <clears throat> now, verse 9, the question would be to the Romans, who are not Jews, does this apply to me? Verse 9, cometh this blessedness then Upon the circumcision only, and the circumcision is, is a, 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 you know, it's talking of the Jews, they had the covenant of circumcision. Or upon the uncircumcision also. <clears throat> For we say that faith was reckoned or imputed 
to Abraham for righteousness. It was by faith, not by circumcision. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Now, the covenant of circumcision that God gave to Abraham and said, all of your descendants will have this sign in their flesh, that they will be circumcised and it will be my covenant with all of your descendants. That covenant didn't come until Genesis 17. It was in Genesis 17 that God said that that's the way it's going to go. But Abraham's righteousness was imputed or given in chapter 15. Meaning that God declared Abraham righteous by faith before the covenant of circumcision came. So Abraham was not counted righteous because he was circumcised or kept any covenant. He was counted righteous because he believed in God. Where Paul is going with this is this. Is that if righteousness by faith was imputed before circumcision came, then that means it's not contingent upon circumcision for the New Testament believer or for the Gentile. It says in verse 11 that he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that's of faith, which he had, he had the righteousness, while he was uncircumcised. That he might, and here's where we're getting into our, the answer to our question, that he might be the father of all. Now remember back in verse 1 when he said, our father? He says that he might be the father of all them that believe, not of all them that are circumcised, of all that are of faith, that righteousness, or though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed or reckoned or given unto them also. That is, the Gentiles, those that aren't circumcised. And, verse 12, the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only. That would be the Romans. That would be most of us here. I don't know if there's any. I think I know at least one of you that's Jewish by descent. But who also walk, and here it is, in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. Now, that's the most important verse in the study of the life of Abraham that there is in the Bible, right there, where it says, those um, who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. <laughs> For, he goes on to say, we'll come back to that in a moment, the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed, his descendants, through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, then faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Because the law works wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith, righteousness is of faith, that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, listen, who is the father of us all. You see that? It's inclusive. It's not just to the Jew, but it's also to the Gentile. 
And so Abraham becomes the father of us all. Now, that's where we get the answer to our question of what in the world was the work that God had foreordained Abraham to do? Why is the story of Abraham in the Bible, and what benefit is there to us, a men's discipleship group in, in the modern day, what benefit is there for us to study the life of Abraham? The answer is this, is that he is the father of all those who are saved by grace through faith. And that what Paul says about us, every Christian that would follow, is that we walk in the steps of Abraham. In other words, what God put Abraham's story in the Bible for, for us is as an example of the Christian life. In other words, as we look at the life of Abraham and we see how God saved him and then what God did in his life, bringing him from that point of separation from Babylon all the way up until his death, what it serves for us is an example of how God works in every life. Now, no two of us look exactly the same. We understand that. We're all different. We have different personalities, different attributes and qualities. But yet we're all human, and we're all recognizable in that way. And so too also is it in the walk or the relationship that we have with God. There are differences in that all of us have a different gifting, a different wiring, a different calling. We all have different works that we're going to do. But the overall um, characteristic of what makes us God's people is going to be the same. And the way that God works in our lives and what he creates and does in our lives is going to be the same. And so what God did through the life of Abraham is he laid out for us a pattern and an example of what it means to live in a relationship with God in this world while we're waiting to go to heaven. And so what's laid out for us in his life is how God called him and saved him, how God interacted with him and changed him, and, and, and how God led him around in what God did. And so we see everything in his life, warts and all. We see all of his errors. We see his victories and strength. We see his growth. We see the tests that, and the temptations that were placed across his, his uh, um, path. We see all of that laid out before us. And we see how God dealt with him in those things, both in his weaknesses and his strengths and his failures and his successes, and where God ultimately brought him. And then what we get to see is then the fruit that came out of that kind of a life. And so for you and I, it becomes an incredible pattern, and it gives us incredible insight into the things that we go through and why and what will be the outcome uh, of, of the walk that we have with God if we continue to do it. And so what we have through Abraham is we have the only example in the Bible, in the whole Bible, of a man's walk of faith with God from beginning to end. We get a lot of snapshots in, in other stories or pictures or attributes of other things, like a calling or you know someone who's going to be a king or someone who's going to be a teacher or someone who's going to be a mother. But in Abraham, we get the whole picture of a walk with God, and that was God's intent. Now, Abraham never knew that, that that was what, that was what God was doing in his life, uh, laying it out for us in the way that he did. Um, but we have that uh, so that we might learn, learn about it. Now, where did Abraham come from? And that's really where we begin uh, in our study and relating to the passage that we read in Genesis early uh, in this study. 
The Bible um, really is what we could call a tale of two cities. Maybe some of you have heard that analogy uh, as it relates to the Bible before. Um, the first city that the Bible tells us of is spiritually called Babylon. And, and Babylon is something that comes up from Genesis to Revelation. We saw it uh, just in our text that we read this morning concerning Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, in Genesis chapter 11, earlier on in the story of Nimrod uh, and the Tower of Babel and the, and the whole thing. And then you see Babylon all the way at the end of the Bible, in Je- uh, Revelation chapter 18, when, when mystery Babylon and also then commercial Babylon are destroyed and they find their ultimate end. But you see this thread that attaches uh, between Genesis and Revelation, and you see Babylon mentioned all throughout. And Babylon was both a literal place that existed, but it has a spiritual application uh, and meaning as well. And what Babylon represents in the Bible is what we would call the kingdoms of this world. And Babylon has an origin. Uh, Babylon has a set of ideals. It has an identity. It has a culture. And, and it all has to do with this world. It is fallen. It's apart from God. It is uh, idolatrous. It is uh, all kinds of words are coming into my head more than I can blurt out, you know. But in, in essence, it represents all of the evil of this world and all of that which is against God in this world. It's the city of Babylon, and we see the story of it in the Bible. The other city that the Bible presents to us is Jerusalem. And inasmuch as Jerusalem was also a physical, literal location, the name means city of peace. And it was the city that God established and said, I will put my name there. And so Jerusalem in the Bible is a picture of the heavenly city or of the kingdom that is not of this world. And so you have the kingdom that is of this world, and then you have the kingdom that is not of this world. The earthly, Babylon, and the heavenly, which is Jerusalem. Now, any city is not a city unless it has citizens. Unless you're in China. I heard they have cities there that have no citizens. (laughs) But in the Bible and in real life, if a city doesn't have citizens, it's not a city. And so the Bible, in as much as it's a tale of two cities, it's also a tale of the citizens of those cities. And so you have the inhabitants of the Bible, which are the people of this world. Now, from the very beginning, we see that Adam and Eve had two sons. They had Cain, and they had Abel. And we see that one of those two, figuratively speaking, was a citizen of Babylon, the kingdoms of this world. That would be Cain. And that the other was Abel, one who wanted to walk in obedience to God and follow the pattern that was set forth by God, and that was Abel. We saw very early on that Cain incited in wrath against the favor of God upon Abel, killed him when he offered the lamb and was then dejected by God himself. And we saw that the descendants of Cain rapidly began to multiply within the earth. You read in Genesis chapter 3 about the sons and then the grandsons of Cain, and you realize that very quickly the population of Babylon is expanding. You see that they are a whole race of Revelers and polygamists and murderers. You know, you read about what they did and the testimony of Scripture in the lifeline of the descendants of Cain. And it wasn't until uh, a, a few generations of Cain's line was established that Adam and Eve had another son whose name was Seth. And it was when 
Seth's son, Enos, was born, that the Bible says, Genesis chapter uh, 5, that it was then that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so you have a, like a bunch of generations of Cain's descendants populating the earth and really literally filling it with Babylonian citizens before men even began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so you, the, 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 the citizens of Babylon got a jump start on the citizens of Jerusalem, so to speak. And then you follow the line of Seth, and it brings you down to Noah after about ten generations. And by the time we get to the days of Noah, which is about 2,000 years, give or take, from the time of creation, we see that the citizens of Babylon have so overrun the world that they've choked out the light of God's presence in the world almost altogether. So that by the time the flood came, God can only find eight people in the whole world that are worth saving. Saved by grace. <laughs> But only eight that are worth God says, I'm going to wipe the whole thing out. And so God does. He, he takes them out completely. And the flood happens, and God starts over. So you have a transition from the old world into the new world. So eight people, eight souls, get off the ark. You have Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. Noah had three sons, and their names were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Noah pronounced a blessing, a prophecy upon them, speaking of their destiny and what they would become. And so he spoke of Shem, who was not the oldest, but he spoke of him as being the highest. And the reason why Shem would be the highest is because it would be through Shem's line that God would establish again the citizenship of Jerusalem. It would be through Shem's line that Abram would come, and then the descendants of Abram, being the, the Israelites, and thus those that would hear and receive the word of God, and he would become the father of faith. Japheth would be the second in order. He would be a servant of Shem, but he would also dwell in the tents of Shem. And it was a prophecy concerning Gentile salvation. Japheth being the father of the Gentile nations, but he would live in the tents of Shem. So God, even from that time, speaking of it. And then Ham, he was the curse. Because of what he did in exposing Noah's sin, and of course you'll have to read the text if you don't know what the heck I'm talking about right now. <laughs> but there was a curse that was placed upon, not Ham, but upon Canaan, who was the son of Ham. As Ham was a curse as a son, so Canaan as a son of Ham would be a curse to the world. And it was through Canaan's descendants, Cush being his son, that Nimrod was born, and it says that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, or Babylon. And so the literal Babylon came through the descendants of Ham, through the man Cush and then Nimrod, and thus the literal Babylon, which was a picture of the spiritual Babylon, was born. And of course the story of uh, them building a tower against the Lord in rebellion against God, and God coming down to founding the languages, and then, uh, of course, scattering and judging. But what you have after the flood is that you have these two cities, these two citizens in the world at the same time. You have Babylon, the citizens of this world, the kingdoms of this world against God, and you have Jerusalem, those that will walk with God, those that want to know God, those that renounce their citizenship to this world. Now, nine generations, or about 290 years after the flood, Shem, 
and his descendants gave birth to Terah and Abraham, whom we read about in our text. And the reason why I go through all of that history to bring us to the point where Abraham comes onto the scene is this. Is that Abraham, when he was called, was a citizen of Babylon. Can you see that? It was Ur of the Chaldees. If you look at Acts chapter 7, and you don't have to turn there, but if you can remember that, and I'm sure it'll come up again in our study of Abraham in the coming weeks. Stephen, who was preaching concerning Abraham, says that Abraham lived in Mesopotamia when God said, get out. In other words, Abraham was a full citizen of Babylon at the time that he was called. That's important to understand. And that's where now we bring application into our life. Because here's what that means. We're almost finished. Don't think like, oh my goodness. This is what we need to see this morning. The reason for this part of this Bible study concerning the life of Abraham. Is that when Abram was called, he was a citizen of Babylon. Meaning that he was alienated from the life of God. He was in spiritual darkness. He was not saved. If he had died while he was in that position and in that situation, he would have gone to hell. He didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. He was lost. He was part of that, um, that citizenship of it and caught up in the current of the world under subjection to the prince of the power uh, of the air. And, and that's where he was. And here's what you need to know. Is that every single one of us that's here... <laughs> was in the same place when we were born into this world. Every single one of us are born into this world lost as citizens of Babylon, separated from God. And if left to our own, we would become, uh, we would be lost forever. In Ephesians chapter 2, I've asked you to turn there. I want to show you this. Ephesians chapter 2. Notice what Paul says concerning you and I. He says, and you, that's us, has he quickened. Quickened means made alive. We're dead and now we've been brought back. Like if you can picture the AED that, you know, shocks someone, <clears throat> brings them back. That's what it means to be quickened. We've been spiritually shocked into life. You, as he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now notice that he doesn't say, and some of you, he has quickened who were dead. Because some of you were okay and didn't need to be quickened. Some of you were alive and you just had a little bit of reformation, uh, had your behavior adjusted a little bit, and now you're okay. He doesn't say that. He says, you, all of you, were dead. And that's what God sees. When he, when he looks at that little tiny baby that is born in the hospital that we are so enamored with and so cute and so innocent and so full of life, God looks at it and he sees it's dead. It is spiritually dead. It's lost because of its lineage. It's a descendant of Adam. It's still under sin, and so it's dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein, when you were in that condition, verse 2, in time past, you walked according to the course of this world. So if you're a citizen of the world and you're dead with the world, then it just makes sense that you're going to go with the current of the world. 
the current of Babylon, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to Satan. Satan is called the prince of this world. Jesus called Satan the god of this world. But he's the one that pulls the strings and calls the shots concerning the things that happen here. And so all of us walked according to the current, and all of us, listen carefully, were under subjection to Prince Satan. We all served him. He says, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation. Conversation means lifestyle, our manner of living. In times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So in other words, our original nature, when we're born into this world the first time, is to follow its course, to be in subjection to its prince, and what that looks like, how you know that you're living there, is that you follow after the lusts of your flesh and of your mind. That whatever your flesh dictates and tells you to do, whatever comes by nature to you, that's what you're attracted to. Because we, we follow the course that we're in. We go with the current that we're a part of. We obey the Father that we are born under. And if that's our Father, then that's what we do. And that's how we know that we're lost. And every one of us can testify to that. Because we have walked according to the course of the flesh and the things that we desire within our flesh. Turn to chapter 4. <clears throat> the page or two over to the right. Paul begins to apply his, um, his, his uh, substance of teaching by the time you get to chapter 4. The first three chapters of Ephesians, it's all just doctrine. He begins to apply it. And so, you know, obviously we haven't read those whole three chapters, but I want you to hear this part of Paul's application. Notice in verse 17 of chapter 4. Paul says this, This I say, therefore. That's how you know you're about to be instructed. When you see the word therefore, it's connecting what he said to what we need to know. And testify in the Lord that you, Christian, that you, disciple of Jesus Christ, you that's been born again, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. So do you see the separation that's taking place now? All of a sudden, you were once a citizen of this world, but now you're something else. You've been brought out of that path of darkness, and now you're in a different path. You've been a citizen of something, now you're a citizen of something else, and it should look totally different. He says that you don't walk in the vanity of your mind, and here he describes what we were. Here's what we were, verse 18. Having the understanding darkened. That's the first mark of the, the citizen of Babylon, is that they have their understanding darkened. What that means, very simply, is that it means you have knowledge without wisdom. Meaning that you know something. You, it, we're not stupid. We're not walking around here idiots. But yet we don't know how to use what we know to find the right application of that knowledge. So our understanding is darkened. And so you look at man. And you look at the incredible advancements that man has made. You look at an airplane. That still blows my mind. <laughs> to think of something like flying through the air that weighs that much. You know, my son asked me, he looked at a picture of the Titanic, he's four years old, he's got an incredible um, in, in, um, inquisitiveness. And he goes, Dad, how does that not sink? <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I like the way you think, boy, you know. But the ability of us 
to, to, to create something like that. The ability of man to take what he knows and to make something like that. But when the understanding is darkened, he doesn't know how to use that knowledge, and then it gets used for evil. So an airplane is used to crash into buildings or as a weapon of mass destruction in some way. You know, it's, it's twisted. You look at the incredible medical advancements that man has made. The ability to use ultrasound and CAT scan and the surgical instruments and microscopic things. But if the understanding is darkened, then those things are used for evil. It's used to take the life of a baby out of the womb and, uh, and just do incredibly wicked things with it. You look at the internet and what man's been able to do with the internet, but because the understanding is darkened, you look at what the internet is used for. And so a dark understanding will take under, will take knowledge and they'll pervert it and twist it, and that's what the Gentile mind is. It's alienated, it says, from the life of God, so that means it's separated from the life of God. The Gentile, born into this world, doesn't know God. They're separated from God's life. And that's through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Now, ignorance is always willful. When someone says that they're ignorant about something, the word, do you see the word in there? The word ignore. It's to ignore. It means I'm, I'm ignorant. And, and if someone's ignorant, it's because they're ignoring it. And if someone doesn't know God in the world today, the reason they don't know God is because they ignore him. Because the Bible says that that which can be seen of him is clearly seen in the things that are made. Even his eternal Godhead. So that they're without excuse. But the reason why they ignore him is because their heart is blind. He says because of the blindness of their heart. And then the result of that is that who being past feeling, meaning they can no longer even hear the knocking of their conscience, they can't feel the guilt of sin anymore, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness, that's lawlessness, to work all uncleanness, and uncleanness is almost always used in the sexual context. So sexually unclean with greediness or covetousness or an incessant desire to consume. That's what that means. And that's, that's probably the best description of the citizen of Babylon that exists anywhere in the universe. What Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through uh, 19. That's the, the, the total picture of the Gentile mind, the person that doesn't know God. And here's what you've got to understand. That's where Abraham was when he was a citizen of Babylon. But God began to do something in his life that we're going to begin to study next week. But here's where we close, and this is the application for you and I. Is that every single one of us was a citizen, or perhaps maybe you are a citizen of Babylon. The Bible is a tale of two cities, it's a tale of two citizens, but that means it's also a tale of two paths, or two roads. And every single person that comes to salvation by faith, through grace, changes from citizenship in Babylon to citizenship in Jerusalem. And that is without exception. You cannot be saved unless your citizenship changes. Those two roads never meet. They never blend. And so that you're on one and the same. Okay, I'm a citizen of this world, but now I'm also headed towards heaven. Can't happen. There must be a change. You are either alienated from God on the road 
of this world on its course, or you have been reconciled to God through the death of his son, and now you're no longer on that path, but you're on the path that leads towards heaven. And that's important because there's a lot of people in the day and age that we live in today that think because they've accepted Jesus Christ that they're going to go to heaven. Well, I've accepted Jesus Christ. Well, listen, it's possible for you to accept Jesus Christ without ever getting off the road that you're on. It's possible for you to continue on in the vanity of your Gentile mind following the lusts of your flesh and of your mind and to say, well, I recognize that heaven and hell is real. A conviction has come over me that I'm not right, and so I'm going to add Jesus to my path. I'm going to accept him into my life, but my life's not going to change. I'm not going to make him the Lord of my life and follow him. He's going to come along with me where I am, and you can't do that. Conviction comes upon the heart. God begins to do a work inside. And what he says to us is this. Get thee out of your father's house and from your country and from your kindred and come to a land that I will show you. That's what God said to Abraham. He didn't say, I want you to begin learning some ideals and things that, will, that, that are going to change your life and make you the father of many nations and I'm going to come the first thing before anything else, before anything else could happen in Abraham's life, he had to get out of Babylon and become a citizen of something else. Get out of your country and from your family, not speaking necessarily about, you know, he didn't separate immediately from his father, but spiritually speaking, he needed to separate from the family of humanity that he was a part of. And he had to be part of something that was altogether separate. And that's where every walk of faith begins. That's where every experience, true experience of salvation begins. That God comes into the life, he comes into our life, and he begins to stir something inside and show us what we are, show us where we live apart from him. And he says, get out. Turn away from the life that you're in and the path that you're on and come to a land that I will show you. And apart from that, there is no salvation. There must be a changing of our citizenship and of our allegiance and of our dwelling place. Cannot be citizens of Babylon and expect that we are going to someday see heaven. No citizen of Babylon will see heaven. We must renounce it and become citizens of heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we just thank you this morning that as we begin this study of Abraham's life and we see, Lord, what he was, where he came from. And what you began to do within him to bring him to a place where he would be willing to see the vanity of where he was and to come out looking for something that was greater and higher. And as we lay our own experience over what you've laid out before us in Scripture, we ask you, Lord, that you'd help us to see our lives clearly through that lens. The Father, you would show us our ideals that you would enlighten our hearts, give us the ability to see, are we on the path 
the world the course of Babylon? Or have we fully become citizens of the kingdom that's to come? You tell us in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham was looking for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker is God. And I pray, Lord, for each one of us that if our affections, our allegiance, our ties are in any way still knit together in Babylon, that you would help us to see the vanity of it and to hear the clarion call of heaven that says, come out of her. be separate, says the Lord. Father, I ask that you would enlighten our hearts, that you'd show us yourself, that you would give us a vision, a clear vision of this world and where it's headed, and also of your kingdom and what's to come. And that you would join our hearts to you, Lord, and call us apart like you did with Abram. So may you speak individually to each one of us. May we honestly see where we are, where we're going. And may we again, Lord, see him who bled upon a cross, who gave his all to rescue us from the destruction to come, that we might be saved and joined to you eternally. As we move forward, Lord, in this study, I pray that we would learn, that we would glean, that we would grow, that you would help us, Lord, to understand. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Comments, questions, thoughts? Raymond? It seems to me that in this, the whole arc of the story of Abraham's life, and, and granted he was living in Babylon until God called upon him, is that when God called upon him and gave him instructions, he didn't just say, ah, oh, this is nonsense. But in the face of unbelievable challenges and unbelievable circumstances, like having his son Isaac with his wife Sarah, and, and like 